0: Send a great singing this morning. Am I the only person wearing short sleeves? <laughs> I actually, I, I wore a jacket today, not for me, but really for the, for the ladies who have kids, I just know that it, it pains you to see me not in a, in a coat or something, so I wore it just for you today. But uh, this is nothing. Uh, if you turn to your Bible today to Luke chapter 9, I'm calling an audible in the bulletin that says Matthew 28. Uh, I, I switched that up. Both of those are, are good passages, but uh, we'll be looking at Luke 9. And uh, The reason why I switched it up is because I started writing and wrote so much that I didn't have time to get to Matthew 28. So Luke 9 it is. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we come before you with so many who need prayers. I rejoice in the good report for how Ben Ravens is doing, and he still has a long road of recovery ahead, so I continue to pray for him, for him to recover well, heal well, and to, uh, for his body to accept this transplant, Lord. But we thank you, Lord, that he's come to this point. Lord, I also want to pray for Eric and the uh, issue that he's having with his leg. And I I pray that pain or discomfort would clear up with that, Lord, and, and I pray for him as well. Lord, I thank you so much for Eric and the just source of joy and encouragement that he is to all of us here. Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we study in your word. I pray that you would bless that, that we would be encouraged, that we would be pointed to your son and the life that he desires for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62 this morning. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. There's a hymn called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, which largely owes its notoriety to Billy Graham as it became a popular song sung during his famous crusades. I won't sing it, because I love you guys. But, from the song it says, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, before giving the refrain, no turning back. No turning back. Second verse. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Third verse says. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And the final verse asks a question. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. When you truly understand the gospel of grace, There is no turning back. This morning we're continuing in our New Year's series, Pillars of the Christian Faith. Two weeks ago we talked about the Bible, the Word of God. Last week we talked about prayer. Today we're talking about the subject of discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a follower or a student of a teacher. And a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus and his teachings. The Bible And prayer are disciplines the Lord has given, which enable us to know him and grow with him. Discipleship is a matter of actually following him. Following is what it's all about. In the Gospels, from the outset of his ministry, we see Jesus calling people, follow me. As I mentioned, our passage this morning is from Luke 9, and we'll get there in a few minutes. But first, I want to turn our attention to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where we see Jesus calling his first disciples. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Discipleship is not a call to to live in your old way of life. It's not Jesus saying, hey, you're doing pretty good on your own. Just keep doing what you're doing. No, it's Jesus saying, follow me. We see the response of Simon and Andrew in verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. No turning back, no turning back. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks to his followers about the life of discipleship to which they've been called. And he makes two metaphors where it compares the disciples to salt and light. First, Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. While salt has several uses... Its most important purpose in the first century, and the most likely meaning of what Jesus is saying, is that salt is a preservative. And it is the disciples of Jesus who are called to live in the world and to strive to keep the world from moral impurity and decadence. When Jesus asks, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He's asking a rhetorical question. Because if salt is no longer salty, it's worthless. Either the salt has been so degraded that it can't serve its purpose, or perhaps it was never salt to begin with. But the point that Jesus is making is that for a Christian to not be salt, they are therefore not living out the mission of God in the world. When Jesus calls the disciples salt, the point is that the gospel changes lives. The gospel is meant to have an impact. Saying that you're a follower of Jesus needs to mean something. I talk about this often, but our society likes to emphasize God's love and forget that he is also a God who has justice and wrath towards sin. But rather, we like the easy message. We like the easy gospel of, you're not perfect, but now there's anyone else, and God is a God of love and forgives you. We make faith about some vague agreement to Christ. A loose assent hearing, yeah, you can be forgiven. And then saying, sure, I'll have that. As if it's something casual, like somebody asking if you want to have breadsticks at a restaurant. But the danger of an easy gospel is losing sight of Jesus and his call to discipleship. His call to live a life in light of what he has done. Now don't misunderstand. The good news of the gospel is that whatever we've done, no matter how sinful we've been, that there's forgiveness through Jesus. But the point that I'm making is that when a person truly knows Jesus and knows the gospel and it's become real in your life, that your life can never be the same. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples that they should be salt or that it's a good idea to be salt. He says You are the salt of the earth. The gospel changes lives. When a person gets married, their life is supposed to look different. You have someone else to think about. It should impact how you spend your time, your money. When a person has a baby... Their life is supposed to change because it's no longer just about you. You have another life that you're responsible for. You have another person who is totally and completely dependent upon you. Your life is supposed to change. Now, some people's lives seem to change very little on those major events because some people aren't supportive. But when that happens, we see that it's wrong. We see that it's not the way it's supposed to be. In following Jesus, it's meant to result in a life that has changed. If there's no desire to know him, to live for him, then does a person truly understand what Jesus has done? We're okay with saying that he's a savior, but with discipleship, it gets at the question of, is he your Lord? A major issue in the American church is, as we like feel good Christianity, motivational sermons, catchy music, we too often like to make it about entertainment. I'm not saying people can't be genuine Christians in those environments, but we so often emphasize the ease of trusting Jesus while losing sight of his call to discipleship. In Matthew 5, a second metaphor used by Jesus. Verses 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Once again, Jesus says to his disciples something that they are. Not something that they should be. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A disciple of Christ is to be light. Have you ever taken a flashlight, turned it on, knew that it was turned on, put it into a box, and closed the box with a turned on flashlight? Of course not. That's crazy. Because the purpose of light is that it shines. And as a follower of Jesus, we are called to shine the light of the gospel in a darkened world. Not for ourselves, not so people can make much of us or think well of us, but so that we can point to the Lord. And the reason why I can so confidently say that your life will necessarily be different when you come to faith in Jesus is because when you do come to faith, your regenerated, which is a spiritual rebirth. We talked about that several weeks ago in John chapter 3. Being born again. And because it's a spiritual rebirth and a Christian is indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit sanctifies and transforms a believer. To be a Christian is to have the Spirit. To not have the Spirit is to not be a Christian. And to have the Spirit is to be transformed by the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 6.11 You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's not to say that you will never struggle, but if there's no greater love for God no greater pursuit of holiness, no greater devotion to God, no transformation or conviction in areas of sin, then for the sake of your own soul, you need to question if you really believe in the gospel at all. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because your life is no longer your own when you come to Jesus. And the reason why that is true is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. No turning back. No turning back. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are dead to your former life. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I ask, what are you alive to? Is it yourself or is it to Christ? We see this idea again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When you truly understand the gospel, you cannot live a life that is unaffected by the gospel. You can't earn salvation But when you know you're saved by grace through faith, you will necessarily live differently. And the heart of discipleship is having an entire life that revolves around Jesus, following Jesus, knowing, serving, loving, and sharing Jesus with the world. And my goal is never clubbing you guys over the head with more and more things to do, but rather I'm trying to point to the life that Jesus desires from his followers? What is your priority? With that, we come to our section in the Gospel of Luke. And in this passage, we see three different interactions between Jesus and three different men on the subject of discipleship. First person, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 and 58 As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's a pretty abrupt response. In Jesus saying that he has nowhere to lay his head, the point is that Christians who are truly living out the Christian life will always... Be out of place in a fallen world. In this, we also see that Jesus is not hiding from the challenges of following him. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus will talk of persecution, suffering, families being divided over him. Jesus is the realest person who has ever lived, he doesn't shy away from the truth. The world hates the Gospel message. And so what becomes easy for Christians to do is to share a watered-down gospel instead of so preaching Christ crucified. But the gospel is offensive. In a relativistic world where people act as though we can be right in whatever we want to believe or however we want to act, Christianity comes in direct conflict with that. Jesus is the truth, and God is the Lord of all truth. And the truth is whatever corresponds to God's reality, not whatever we want it to be. The gospel calls us to discipleship and not just going with whatever we want to do and saying a few nice things about God along the way. That's offensive to the world. That's demanding to the world. It's not for the faint of heart. In Matthew 10, verses 34 to 37, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The point of this passage is not that Jesus wants to bring harm to relationships, but the point is that in following him faithfully and standing up for Jesus, that there will be those who dislike that. The gospel is offensive. It's divisive. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 says For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life The reason why the gospel is so offensive is because it confronts people with their sin it tells people that you can't be good enough you can't save yourself and if you want salvation, the only way is to trust in what Jesus has done. Second Timothy 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in America, it rarely comes to that extreme. Because Christian values and teachings have so influenced our society and laws. But in much of the world, this is a daily threat and an ever-present risk for people who follow Jesus, suffering for Christ. But even here in America, there can be a temptation to wanna play it safe, to not rock the boat, to not stir the pot, to not be vocal about your faith, to keep it to ourselves. We're virtually never under any threat of extreme persecution. So shouldn't that be all the more reason to have even more evangelistic zeal to share the message of Christ because it's safe? What's the worst thing that can happen in America to an American for sharing your faith? Maybe you could face a little bit of pressure at a job. Or maybe someone won't like you. People in other parts of the world lose lives to share the gospel and for the gospel. the things that we worry about in comparison are so small. Because part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to share his gospel in a fallen world. Part of being a disciple is making disciples. But the world hates the message of the gospel. We see a second picture of discipleship as Jesus interacts with a second person. Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Just like when he approaches the disciples at the beginning of his ministry, To this second person, Jesus says, follow me. Unlike the disciples, this man does not leave what he's doing to follow Jesus. Instead, he gives an excuse. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, at first glance, that seems reasonable. Hey, I'm on my way to a funeral right now. Can you give me a half hour for this to And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Most scholars pretty much across the board believe that the man was not literally about to go to his dad's funeral, but rather what he's saying is that he wanted to wait until the end of his father's natural life and then start following Jesus. He was putting it off like the passage we studied a few weeks ago from the book of Haggai where the Israelites had been freed from slavery for the purpose of rebuilding the temple and 20 years had come and gone and they had yet began the process of building the temple they were putting it off Jesus tells the man go and proclaim the kingdom of God there's a sense of urgency Jesus talks of taking up your cross in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we stop living for the world and for ourselves and instead start living for Jesus, that that is where life is truly found. But again, that's a message that too many churches and too many Christians shy away from. Jesus isn't asking you to just be nice. He's not asking you to just go to church. He's calling you to follow and saying, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. No turning back, no turning back. True discipleship involves both a death to self and a willingness to give up all for the sake of Christ. True discipleship is costly. One of the greatest and most influential Christian books in the last century is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran minister and professor in Germany and wrote The Cost of Discipleship as a treatise on what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. For Bonhoeffer, this was not merely an academic exercise. It was something that he lived out. As his life in ministry and work in academia were coming into prominence in Germany, the Third Reich was also on the rise. In the early 1930s, he was vocal in his opposition to Hitler and the Nazi party. But as the Nazis became more oppressive to opposition and World War II began, Bonhoeffer was part of the resistance movement. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned. He would be executed at Flossenbürg concentration camp in April of 1945, just two weeks before that camp was liberated by Allied forces, and a month before the Germans surrendered. And The Cost of Discipleship, one of the most influential ideas that comes from Bonhoeffer is this concept of cheap grace and costly grace. Quoting Bonhoeffer now, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave his nets, because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be for us cheap, Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. We see a third interaction with Jesus, Luke chapter 9, verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." So this third man says, "I will follow so far so good. I will follow you, Lord, but no turning back, no turning back." Jesus wants our total devotion. This third interaction echoes an event that happens in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19 when the prophet Elijah calls Elisha. And in that passage, Elisha similarly wants to say goodbyes. 1 Kings nineteen twenty, He left his oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me first kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. In that instance, Elisha was permitted to say his goodbyes. And the difference that Luke is driving home in his gospel is that with Jesus and the kingdom that he is ushering in, there is an even greater sense of urgency. That Jesus desires a singular focus on him, his mission, and his kingdom. That it must be above all other things. In Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50, the apostle records an event in Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, or Matthew says of Jesus, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is your mother and who are your brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And that we see the value of discipleship. Dying to self and living for Jesus. Obeying the commands of the Father. And with that comes the promise of hearing the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. While the world is sinful, we have one who is overcome. We've talked about the word and prayer over the last couple weeks. We've talked about the importance of keeping God first in your life. Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll talk about service, fellowship, and worship. These all go together and have a life that revolves around Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Are you? It's a serious question. Again, it's not simply a matter of coming here every Sunday. That's great. But are you following Jesus every day? Are you his disciple? The Christian life is not a call to ease. Not a call to a life of ease. It's a call to follow but it's because of the one to whom we are called to follow that it makes the Christian life worth it. Jesus says, follow me. Will you? Will you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Will you put his kingdom first, even above your own desires, your own happiness? Because that's where true life is found. No turning back, no turning back. In the 1880s, a group of American missionaries were ministering to various tribes in a remote region in India. Many of the surrounding tribes were very hostile to the gospel and to foreign missionaries. Successes in preaching the gospel were few and far between, but the missionaries did convert one man and his family to Christianity. This man who had come to faith was persecuted for believing in Jesus And he was soon taken into custody by the local leaders in the village. He was ordered to renounce his faith or face execution. In the most dire of circumstances, with his life on the line, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The tribal leaders took his two sons and killed them. They asked again if he would renounce his faith. And the man said, though none go with me, still I will follow. The man was given one final opportunity to renounce his faith, but his last words were simply, the cross before me, the world behind me. And his last words were no turning back. Seeing this tremendous act of faith inspired some of his persecutors, and a revival broke out in this village. Years later, an Indian missionary took this man's last words and set them to music. And what became the song that we sing today, I have decided to follow Jesus. The song that was made famous by Billy Graham's rallies is not merely a song about walking up to a stage and making a profession of faith. It's about a disciple who decided to follow Jesus even though it cost him everything. Deciding to follow Jesus is not simply a one-time event. It is a way of life. No turning back. No turning back. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son and the life that he invites us into, Lord, that that is where true life is found. Life is found in losing it. Power is perfected in weakness. Lord, may we take up our cross and follow you and walk with you and be your disciples and live the life that you want us to live and serve you faithfully every day. In Jesus' name, amen.